0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton.
1: We're speaking today with Justin Gottschlich, who leads the machine programming research team at Intel Labs. The newly formed research group focuses on the promise of machine programming, which is a fusion of machine learning, formal methods, programming languages, compilers and computer systems. Justin, welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you so much for being with us here today.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for having me, Michael.
1: So I just read that description of what machine programming is, mm-hmm. but I think that, you know, given all the buzz around AI, a lot of people are familiar with machine learning, but most of them, like me, don't have a clue what machine programming means. Perhaps you could explain the difference between the two?
0: Certainly. Yeah, so at the very highest level, machine learning can be considered within the subset of artificial intelligence, and there's many different types of machine learning uh, techniques. One of the most prominent right now are these things called deep neural networks, and that's a lot of what uh, people are using to make the tremendous progress that we're seeing over the last decade. The machine programming is really the idea that we're trying to automate the development and maintenance of software. So the fundamental difference between the two is that with machine programming, you can kind of think of all of the field of machine learning being a subset of the field of machine programming. But in addition to using machine learning techniques, which are these approximate types of solutions, we'll also use other things like formal Uh, program synthesis techniques that will give us mathematically proven uh, correct pieces of software. And then uh, between those two points, you can kind of think of those as a spectrum. You have the approximate solutions here and the precise solutions here. And then there's a fusion of a number of different ways that you can combine these. And every one of these things essentially is a part of the bigger landscape of machine programming.
1: So, if I understood you right, <clears throat> uh, machine programming is when you create software uh, that uh, ca- that can create more software. Right. right? Uh, how would that happen? And I wonder if you could give us a couple of examples, uh, just yeah. to help our audience understand this.
0: Yeah. So, uh, the idea of creating software that creates its own software is really the core idea between or inside of uh, machine programming. And a couple examples of that is we recently built a system using genetic algorithms. And what it does is it'll allow you to take certain input-output examples, and then by running through a number of iterations, we call them evolutions in the genetic algorithm space, it will then automatically synthesize the program that will match the input and output. You do this sort of in the training phase, and then it will take new input-output examples that it's never seen before and then generate these new particular types of programs. So that's like one example that uh, uh, you might have in the space of machine programming.
1: And if you were to think about the impact that machine programming might have on different industries, mm. which industries do you think are likely to be affected most by this and over what period of time?
0: Yeah, this, so this is a fantastic question and one that... Uh, could require a, a very long response, so I'll try to keep it slightly abbreviated. Uh, at the highest level, one could imagine that any of the industries that are predominantly based in software are going to benefit this benefit from this tremendously. Uh, there was a recent survey that was done in t- earlier two thousand nineteen that showed, I think. Uh, we have something like half a million computer scientist positions that are open. So these are programming positions in industry that we need to fill. But we're only producing roughly 10% mm-hmm. of the actual programmers to fill those roles. Mm-hmm. So what, what we're having in the software industry is essentially a bottleneck of supply. If we can start to automate some of the simple tasks, uh, you know, reading in a file, Uh, Parsing data, helping us automate the the software development testing, this will, I think, tremendously accelerate the rate at which software is being developed. So I I would say that that's probably the first very obvious place. The other area that I think is going to be impacted tremendously by this are autonomous systems. In most of the spaces in autonomous systems, a core ingredient of those systems is software. Mm. So, for example, If one were to think about autonomous vehicles, uh, a large part of what's holding us back from getting to level four or level five autonomy, which is the point where the car can essentially handle all of the nuanced behaviors of driving in downtown Philly or something of that nature, a big bottleneck of that is really the uh, implementation and the algorithms of the machine learning systems, if we can automatically construct those, these autonomous systems will also accelerate in their advancement.
1: I'd like to come back in a little bit to the question about uh, autonomous vehicles and the impact on the auto industry. But given the fact that a lot of our audience is in the financial services industry, mm. I wonder if we could go a little deep into that. Uh, so, I mean, I know that AI has made quite a significant impact, for example, in areas like fraud detection. Right. Uh, do you think machine programming can also have a major impact there? And if so, what what might that look like?
0: Absolutely. Uh, so this is a fantastic question. And as I was mentioning earlier, with machine learning systems, Uh, Their foundation is essentially learning through statistical analysis. In some sense, this makes them probabilistic, that they are getting us close to the the right answer. But there's, in, in many cases, we're not guaranteed that we'll have the right answer. When we think about machine programming, we go back to that spectrum of how we have probabilistic to very precise solutions. It's my belief that, for example, in the financial sector, there are certain cases where probabilistic solutions aren't sufficient. So one might speculate that as you're doing some sort of financial transaction, having the probability that, oh, I've sort of been rounding off the cents right, you know, I'm close enough, probably isn't sufficient if those transactions are happening billions of times a day. In that case, we need a, a more precise solution. And this is one of the areas that I think you could use machine programming in.
1: Interesting. Uh, coming back to the other industry that you mentioned, the, the auto industry, uh, what kind of impact do you think uh, machine programming will have uh, on, on the whole drive towards autonomy? You, I think you started talking about that in the context of Philadelphia. Yeah. But I wonder yeah. if you could go a little more deep into what that might look like.
0: For sure. Uh, so as I was mentioning earlier, we recently uh, built a system that's using this, this uh, genetic algorithm to automatically construct programs. What I didn't mention is one of the pieces that's part of genetic algorithm is this thing called a fitness function. The fitness function is essentially, you can think of it as a way that you grade the accuracy of the programs or the results that the genetic algorithm is giving. So the genetic algorithm produces a result and the fitness function says you get a B or you get an A. Historically, though, fitness functions have been written by humans, Mm -hmm. and not just any human, really expert machine learning humans. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, what we find is the complexity of the problem you're trying to solve is directly related to the complexity of the fitness function. Mm -hmm. So one could naturally infer then, why would you write the fitness function? Just solve the problem yourself. So we took a look at this, and what we did is we figured out a way, using machine learning, that we could Automatically create the fitness function without a human involved. Mm -hmm. So, now going back to your question, if you think about this type of thing in the autonomous vehicle space, one of the things that's holding us back is the advancement of ML systems. And historically, the advancements that we've had with ML systems have been through humans creating them. Mm -hmm. But if we use machine programming, one could imagine, like we have with the genetic algorithm solution, that the machine can actually start to invent. Its own machine learning systems that will then accelerate the progress of these autonomous systems.
1: So, what are the implications of that? One of the things that I've heard about that's holding back autonomous systems, as you or the autonomous vehicles, is the fact that it might be too late to for the system to make a certain. Uh, decision, yeah, uh, and and you uh, because you you don't want to actually hit something, right, right. right? You uh, you you. So we probably need software that can predict what's about to happen before it actually happens. Is that one of the issues that you?
0: Absolutely right. Uh, so this is this tremendous insight. Um, And and actually, we had a a NeurIPS paper, NeurIPS is uh, one of the leading research conferences in machine learning. We had a NeurIPS paper in 2018 that tried to start to address this problem. Mm -hmm. So historically, what you're describing here is uh, the space of anomaly detection. Mm -hmm. So the autonomous vehicle space, when we think about these various behaviors, we think this is an anomaly. And in particular, that's a time series anomaly. So for example, you're trying to prevent this vehicle from colliding with this other vehicle or make sure it doesn't hit a pedestrian. And as you pointed out, it's too late if you already have the event happen to uh, you know, detect it. So what we did in order to address this is we recreated the mathematical foundation for anomaly detection, specifically for time series. And so with this now, what our hope is is that the community will adopt the new mathematical foundation we've created, and then they can apply this for time series anomaly detectors which will start to address those types of problems.
1: So, and machine programming helps with all this?
0: Absolutely. So, in the context of autonomous vehicles, you could think of using this mathematical foundation to better predict these anomalies. But when you think about machine programming, or you think programming in general, many of the problems we're seeing today with software is we have these uh, correctness bugs. We have security bugs. Mm-hmm. We have you know these privacy violations. Mm-hmm. All of these things, in some sense, are time series in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, program is really just a sequence of instructions one after another. So if you take that mathematical foundation, you can also apply it in the space of machine programming, which is exactly what we're doing.
1: Now, one, one thing I've been curious about is that machine programming, like a lot of other areas of AI, has been around since the 1950s. Right. What's behind, you know, the the sudden uh, interest in in machine programming now? Why is it picking up in such a big way? And why is Intel, uh, you know, so interested in uh, sort of uh, investing in in it in a big way?
0: This is a fantastic question. And... um, I'll try to break it down into those two pieces. First, address why we're seeing the, uh, you know, the, the resurgence of this, because it has been around since the 1950s. And then why is Intel so interested? Um, If we look at why it's taking off today, I would say principally there's two reasons. The first is I believe we're at an inflection point. Mm -hmm. And the second is I believe uh, my colleagues and I at Intel Labs and at MIT, we've made an important sort of observation in how to think about the future of machine programming. Mm -hmm. So as far as the inflection point goes, we believe there's really, or my view is really that there's three things that have created this. The first, is we have tremendous advances in algorithms, in machine learning, and in formal methods. Things that uh, didn't exist, say, 12 months ago, potentially are fundamental to the advancement of uh, machine programming. The second is we have tremendous advances in compute today. Uh, As the recent Turing Award winners, uh, Dave Patterson and John Hennessy, are pointing out is we're living in sort of what they call the golden age of computing, Mm -hmm. which they refer to as they they call them domain specific architectures that for a long time, it was really just the CPU. Mm -hmm. But now we're seeing based on the advances we're having in machine learning in other areas, we have these accelerators that are specific to these domains. And so it's creating a tremendous opportunity for acceleration of these machine learning and formal methods that wasn't possible. And then the third piece is the abundance of big and dense data. Uh, For example, there's a repository that's called GitHub. And GitHub basically is a place where people store their software. And what we've seen by looking at GitHub is uh, back in 2008, I think it had roughly 33,000 repositories. Uh, 2009, when I looked at it earlier this summer, I think it was somewhere around uh, over 200 million, cool. which is, yeah, it's it's a tremendous growth. It's It's actually nearly a four-order-of-magnitude growth in a decade. And that kind of of growth and data, as as you probably know, data really drives a lot of these machine learning systems. so this has created essentially a vehicle in which we can start to explore this space. So that's the inflection point. but now the other point of uh, the thing that uh, Intel and I think MIT have observed is fundamentally what we're seeing is the way we've historically done programming, we think is flawed mm-hmm. that there's essentially a blurring of the programmer's intention with these algorithms and with these system-level details. What we really want to do as we move forward is we want the programmer to just specify his or her intention, mm-hmm. that you you want to create a program that will tell you where the nearest Starbucks is, and you just mm-hmm. say, computer. Mm-hmm create a program that will always notify me when I'm near a Starbucks. And then the computer handles all the details of the algorithms to implement. It understands how to translate that to work on the hardware that's on your cell phone or in a data center, that type of thing. Uh, so that those are the two pieces that we think really are creating this opportunity for tremendous growth in machine programming. Now to your second point about why is this interesting to Intel. Um, Intel obviously is very interested in advances in hardware, and me being at Intel for about a decade now, one thing that I've seen, which is really exciting, is Intel really used to be just a CPU company, and we're not today. Today, the heterogeneous hardware landscape that we have at Intel is enormous. We have neural network processors, we have neuromorphic processors, we have GPUs, we have a variety of accelerators, we have FPGAs, and we have a ton of CPUs. The problem, though, is programming these things. That we can have all this tremendous hardware, but how can we possibly expect that the average developer can program this? And this is really why machine programming is essential to Intel, is Intel understands that with this new heterogeneous hardware landscape that really is required to advance all of the technology that we're seeing, we need a way that it's simple enough for the average programmer to harness this massive amount of heterogeneous compute.
1: it Sounds amazing. Uh, the, uh, so, so, since you were speaking about the work that you did with MIT, I understand that you wrote a, a paper called The Three Pillars of Machine Programming mm-hmm. uh, uh, some time ago about some of these concepts. And I was wondering if you could share some of the main insights from that and how, how they relate to some of the things we're talking about.
0: Certainly, yeah. So back in, I think it was 2017, uh, a few of us from Intel Labs teamed up with uh, several people at MIT, and we came up with this vision of what if we did this thing called machine programming? What would the landscape look like? And the main reason for this is we were seeing in these research venues that people were starting to explore machine programming. But they were um, a bit disorganized, that there wasn't structure around the way we were thinking. And so the paper that we wrote, The Three Pillars of Machine Programming, is essentially a roadmap on how we want to express and explore the research space. There are three pillars, uh, intention, invention, and adaptation. Uh, the intention pillar is really what we would think of as the programmer is doing. Uh, in the future, I, I don't really call these people programmers. I, I call them software creators mm. because at the end of the day, our, our blue sky vision is these folks won't write a single line of code. They will express their intention either through natural language, uh, gestures, uh, visual diagrams, whatever is best for them. And and for those hardcore programmers out there, they can still write all the code that they want. So that's the intention pillar. Uh, the invention pillar is it then takes the programmer's or the software creator's intention, and then translates that into the actual software. These are the algorithms, the data structures, that type of thing. Once that's established, then that work gets handed off to the adaptation pillar. The adaptation pillar then takes that code and then figures out, okay, what does the software and hardware ecosystem look like for this particular program? How do we need to augment it to make it run efficiently, securely, securely? correctly, and then in the machine learning context, uh, accurately.
1: Right. Now, in addition to Intel, uh, I'm sure there are other companies that are also working on machine programming. And I wonder if there are any companies with whom you collaborate mm-hmm. uh, 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 whose work you could talk about just to explore how this field is evolving.
0: Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, we have m- many collaborators in industry as well as academia. And some of our industrial partners that are looking into this are Microsoft and Facebook. Mm-hmm. So Microsoft, they have a wonderful gentleman over there, Samit Guwani, mm-hmm. who's seen in, in many people's eyes as one of the founders of formal program synthesis. Mm-hmm. And he actually has developed the system inside of uh, uh, Excel mm-hmm. that will automatically figure out what the user's intent is. They call this FlashFill. Uh, flash Fill. So this is a good, concrete example of Mm -hmm. real-world evidence that this is not just a research toy. Mm -hmm. You can actually build this into real products. Mm -hmm. So Microsoft is deeply interested in this. Uh, Another company is Facebook. Mm -hmm. So Facebook is actually doing tremendous work in this space. They recently published a paper about a system called Aroma. Mm -hmm. And what Aroma does is essentially works along the same lines of the three pillars. It's principally focused on trying to help with the... Uh, intention, that a programmer has an intention of trying to write some code and doesn't quite know exactly how to write that code. The Aroma system then will take a little bit of that code and do an analysis over a very large database and then send the user back, is this what you meant? Yes. And it's sort of a human-in-the-loop machine learning approximate mm-hmm. solution mm-hmm. that's sort of good early evidence that there's a lot of uh, while, while we think of the space machine programming as being a very long journey, there's things that we can be doing today in industry that could be extremely valuable.
1: Uh, that sounds pretty remarkable again. Uh, now, you spoke about several companies. Mm. Uh, which countries do you think are, are making uh, progress that you find impressive in the area of machine programming? Uh, in general, in AI, I've heard that China is uh, you know, advancing in leaps and bounds. Uh, could you talk about uh, you know what's happening in other in other parts of the world and what are some of the things that you are paying attention to?
0: Absolutely. Uh, so as you pointed out, China is doing tremendous things. One of the things that they're doing is they have a very strong sort of governmental infrastructural support mm-hmm. for AI, right. and it's my belief that the U.S. also has this, but maybe not to the level that China does. It's something that I think as a country, we probably need to be a little bit more uh, aggressive and progressive about. There's also uh, a lot of involvement and advances that are happening in Europe. And uh, that's also tied in both with their academic schools, they have very strong uh, ML leaders in academia, and then also the vision that they have through their governmental infrastructure.
1: Which European countries do you think are doing the most interesting work?
0: That That's a great question. Um, off the top of my head, uh, you know, Germany is actually doing some really tremendous stuff, as, as one might imagine. Part of that has to do with the fact that they've been deeply involved in autonomous or, or in vehicles. Right. And the natural evolution is autonomous vehicles. And then the byproduct of that is deep engagement in AI and machine learning.
1: Right. The, uh, which innovations in machine programming do you think are most promising? And uh, mm-hmm. where do you think the next breakthroughs will occur? Uh, in the immediate future,
0: yeah. So this is this is a really fascinating question, and as I was mentioning before, there is a lot of low-hanging fruit where we can make advances and we can build things like Aroma or Flashfill that are very useful. But there are some core challenges that, uh, at least with the folks that I'm interacting with at places like Stanford and MIT and Google and deeply within Intel Labs, that we don't quite have the answer to. Mm -hmm. Um, The first is the structural representation of intention. So what I mean by this is oftentimes when we're writing code, the programmer's intention is diffused across all the code. Mm -hmm. What we really want to be able to do is understand how to properly represent the user's intention. And we don't quite have this. There's a lot of advances that we've made historically with things like compilers mm-hmm. and static analysis tools that create different sort of graphical or tree structures. But when we've tried to apply these in the space of machine programming, they don't quite fit. That we can sort of you know, push the you know, square peg in the round hole, but it's not the right match. So at Intel, we're thinking about this thing that we're sort of roughly calling the abstract semantic graph. And the idea here is this structure, whatever this is, that we don't quite understand, will be some sort of graphical representation of the semantics, essentially the intention, of what the user wants. Once we figure out how to build this thing, my belief is the field of machine programming will see a tremendous spike of growth. Uh, so a lot of people are working on, on this. I'm, I'm working with collaborators, uh, both in industry and then in academia, folks at Penn, mm-hmm. uh, Berkeley, MIT. We're all thinking uh, deeply about this. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to figure out this, uh, this abstract semantic graph soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and until we do, I think that we'll just sort of work with the maybe not perfect solutions and, and try to you know, edge our way forward.
1: So if you figure it out, what might some of the implications be?
0: So some of the implications will be the programs that we'll be able to generate are likely to be orders of magnitude more complex than the ones that we can create today. For example, in the space of uh, formal program synthesis or approximate solutions for machine programming, we may be restricted to, let's say, programs that are up to maybe 100 instructions Mm -hmm. uh, or less. If we figure out how to build this abstract semantic graph, it's my belief that we will move from hundreds to thousands, potentially millions of lines of code. That So the implications of this thing, they're
1: enormous. So when any new technology comes along, uh, especially AI or machine learning or, as, as you described, machine programming, very often technologists have to justify... Mm. These investments to the CFO or to the C- CEO, not just in terms of this is very cool technology, but right. this fits in with the ROI of where the business wants to go, uh, or, or the it fits in with the business strategy. Uh, what are some of the metrics that you think about in terms of uh, what's the R- how in measuring the ROI of machine programming?
0: Right. This is a great question. And, of course, as uh, the leader of the machine programming research group at Intel, uh, it's my job not only to work on the research, but then also justify its business value. I and imagine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah,
0: As you pointed out. And one of the things that you, you might uh, know is Intel is very interested in performance. But we're not just interested in hardware performance. Uh, We're also interested in software performance. So one could imagine that if you have a programmer that's writing code that's slow, Mm -hmm. uh, they might blame the Intel processors as being slow, even though the problem is not the processor, it's actually the software. Mm -hmm. One of the promises of machine programming, and we're seeing early evidence of this, is that the code we can generate through these automated methods, Will be superhuman mm-hmm. in their performance, correctness, security, so on and so forth. One concrete example of that is one of my colleagues, um, Andrew Adams, Jonathan Reagan Kelly, Kayvon Fadahalli, and these are folks from MIT, Stanford, and Facebook. Or actually, I think Andrew Adams just pivoted to Adobe Research. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have built a, a system called Halide. It's a programming language that separates out the programmer's intention from the actual scheduling of that intention. And in their recent paper this year that was published I think in June, they've shown for the first time that the world's foremost experts in this programming language can't compete with the machine. Mm -hmm. That the machine is producing code now that is regularly more efficient. And I think it's by, I, I'm going to be, I'm just going to guess here, by at least 50%. It might be upwards of, you know, 100% faster. And this is the first time in the decade that they've been working in halide that they've been able to achieve this. But so this gives us promise that if we can do it in halide, maybe we can generalize this and start to improve the efficiency of code everywhere. This is really important to Intel, because obviously we want everyone's software to run as efficiently as possible, and we don't want people to mistakenly believe that our hardware is slow when actually the problem is somewhere else.
1: Right. No, I, 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 I hear you, and it actually reminds me of a, of a broader concern that I have often heard about AI, which is that as a lot of Automation begins to take place, and AI systems get as they get implemented. <coughs> that the impact of jobs could be considerable. So, for mm. example, with <coughs> autonomous trucks, uh, <coughs> there has been a fear that lots of truck drivers could be losing their jobs if uh, you know autonomous vehicles start hauling uh, you know uh, goods across the highways. So, uh, do you think that there is a risk? that if uh, machine programming takes off, mm-hmm. that the same thing could happen to software programmer jobs and that uh, this this is something that the industry should be concerned about.
0: Right. This, this is an excellent question and one that I'm asked uh, quite often. Uh, my, my honest opinion is, Actually, the inverse will happen, Mm. is that through machine programming, we will create many jobs, Mm. perhaps millions or tens of millions of jobs. And the reasoning is actually very simple. Right now, we have a a global population in the billions, yet the programmer pool today is a very small percentage. I don't know the exact percentage, but I think that it's roughly around like 1% of the global population. With machine programming, what we are, are trying to achieve is enable the entire global population to create software. Uh, for example, my mother, she's incredible, you incredible know, entrepreneur. She's created several businesses and has just done fantastic. But she's not a programmer. Mm-hmm. So the entire world of software is closed off to her. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, this is one of the reasons that I became so compelled is I see someone like her who's wildly creative. Mm-hmm. She has some amazing ideas. But because software is closed off, those ideas never get realized. And hopefully with machine programming, with this intentionality that we were discussing earlier, this will will create tens, hundreds of millions of jobs. It'll also keep the programmers that we have today employed because There is work to do (laughs) on building these very complex systems. And as we expand intentionality, we're going to require those people, those what we call at Intel, those ninjas, to be ensuring all the subsystems that are part of those three pillars are advancing appropriately.
1: So since we were talking about these adverse consequences, it reminded me of a conversation almost 15 years ago with Mm -hmm. uh, Andy Grove, the former CEO of Intel. Uh, whom we had interviewed in 2004. Uh, and and he's, he once said that for every metric, there should be another paired metric that addresses the adverse consequences of the first. So as you were thinking about some of the metrics that you would use to measure the success or the ROI yeah. of, of uh, machine programming, what would be some of the adverse consequences uh, of machine programming, and what metrics would you use just to keep an eye uh, to make sure things don't go, get out of control?
0: I'm really glad you asked this question. And on top of that, before I answer, I just want to say I'm I'm a huge fan of Andy Grove. It's Mm -hmm. wonderful to be at a company with such strong legacy of leadership. And, you know, we see the impact that Andy has had uh, even today, that the company is really trying to follow a lot of his principles.
1: I I would agree with you wholeheartedly. And in fact, in a book that we wrote in 2004, uh, that Knowledge at Wharton wrote, he was identified as, the top leader among 25 leaders in the past 25 years.
0: Oh, that's fantastic, yeah. I never got the chance to work with him personally, but I know people that have. And from everything I hear, he was not only a tremendous leader, but also a tremendous technologist, uh, which is is sort of a very rare combination. Um, But going back to your question about the adverse consequences, we actually talk about this a little bit in our Three Pillars. Paper And this is part of the reason why we we wrote this paper, is that what we were seeing in some cases of advances is there would be research. For example, one of my colleagues that I'm very fond of, Alvin Chung, he's a professor at Berkeley, and he's doing this work called verified lifting. And verified lifting essentially uses formal uh, program synthesis techniques to lift code from one programming language and then drop it down into another programming language. This is wildly useful for legacy systems that can't be maintained because we don't have a programmer supply. We can lift that code out, put it in a new language where we have lots of programmers. However, one of the things we noticed, and I've discussed this with Alvin, so he Mm -hmm. will probably not be shocked when I mention (laughs) this, is that there's a potential byproduct of that lifting that can reduce intentionality. So, for example, his work we would say principally falls in, uh, you know, the invention and then the adaptation. Uh, based on how that code is transformed, the intentionality of that code could be reduced. For example, things like variable names, function names, things that are really important to programmers may not map properly to the new structure. So. As we're making forward progress in machine programming, what we've asked the community to do is think of the context of the three pillars and then try to understand, are you inadvertently hurting another pillar? And if you are, clarify that so we understand that this is another thing that we now need to advance.
1: Now, since you mentioned, um, you know, some of the academic collaborations, I, was, I know that you spoke at Penn at a precise mm-hmm. uh, uh, event last week. Uh, and I was wondering if we could end by talking a little bit about what kind of work you are planning to do here at Penn.
0: Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm yeah very delighted that you asked this question, and I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I, I had the honor of giving this talk at uh, the Precise Industry Day which was uh, oversold out. I think people were sitting on the floor. (laughs) It was just uh, very well attended. And uh, rightfully so, a lot of the thought leaders in the space of uh, computer science, in formal methods, in machine learning are part of the Precise Center. Uh, Recently, I accepted an invitation to help uh, chair the the technical industry group for Precise and also act as their executive director for artificial intelligence. Um, My role with Precise and with Penn actually, I think, is uh, twofold. The first is with Precise, they have a very strong sort of technical consortium of industry collaborators. Mm -hmm. And what I would like to do is ensure that all of the industrial partners are working in a very complementary way, Mm -hmm. that we understand what the core challenges are and that we're not working in a way that's overlapping, duplicating effort. So that's one part. The other part that's really important to me is, right now we have sort of a lack of machine programming engineers and researchers. In fact, there's very few of us, uh, which makes sense because the field, even though it's been around since the 50s, It's had uh, struggles to get to the point where it is today. So what we're working on with Penn and other academic institutes is to start to incorporate curriculum changes Mm -hmm. and get our undergrads, get our grad students more familiar with it, and then also generate the new leading minds through the PhD programs that are then going to drive the research that are happening both in academia and in the industrial
1: labs. Well, that, all that sounds wonderful. And Justin, thank you so much for taking the time to explain all these things to us. It's wonderful to meet you and very happy to have you here at Knowledge at Wharton.
0: Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.